0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks With The Deal. And today, our guest is Eric Waddell, a debt finance partner at Kirkland & Ellis. Eric, thank you for joining us. David, thank you for having me. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, how you came to Kirkland and came to practice in debt finance. Then the change in the debt finance practice that you've seen in your time in the field, and how that has affected your view of law firm management generally. And then finally, a little bit about what you do outside of work. With that, tell us about yourself, how you came to practice. It's a winding road for
1: sure. I grew up in Arizona, went to undergrad at University of Arizona excellent institution known as Harvard of Southern Arizona but not really known for as a feeder school for New York corporate lawyers i decided after watching movies and thinking that it seemed like a glamorous job and also an impressive one that i was going to go to law school in new york and so applied to fordham and some others or at least i told my dad i did and i got into fordham literally the week before school started. So I had a week to get to school and to get set up. And I did, luckily. And then that's really not the end of the story. So my girlfriend at the time, actually in the summer between my first and second year, passed away. And that was a critical juncture for me. I took off the second semester of school. I was behind. I had to take summer school. After my second year, just to graduate on time. But I became good friends with one of my classmates, Leo Greenberg. And Leo luckily happened to be super smart and super successful at school. And also crazy turn of events. Kirkland didn't even do on-campus interviewing at Fordham in New York at this time. This is like 2003. But Leo had clerked for a judge. And had learned from one of the fellow clerks that if you wanted to do IP litigation, you wanted to be at Kirkland, even though it wasn't a New York firm, and so to kind of be on the radar. Then the next piece of good luck is there was the 2003 blackout. And so there was two partners from Kirkland, LA that were in New York to interview Columbia students. And since that got pushed and they were going to be in New York longer, they added Fordham to the list of interviews that they were willing to do. Leo jumped on that. So Leo goes to Kirkland and quickly starts doing MA with Chris Torrente, who was a fourth-year associate at the time, now on our executive committee. And since I hadn't been a summer associate and didn't have the opportunity to go through OCI, when I graduated, Leo went to Kirkland and said, you should hire this guy, Eric Waddell, from my law school class. And so from this crazy sequence of events, I ended up at Kirkland. And cr- even crazier is Leo is also a partner at Kirkland. He's in the M&A group and we do a lot of our deals together and we've been doing it for 20 years and that's why I'm at Kirkland and that's how my legal career started. There's really no good takeaway for anyone listening to this podcast on <laughs> what they should do besides just,
0: you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And so how did you get into debt finance? Did you start out as a debt finance lawyer? No. And in fact, at
1: Kirkland, no one really, even today, you know, there's a generalist approach when you join the private equity or corporate groups. But even more to the point, then there was no debt finance practice in New York at all. And so I do think there's a takeaway from this lesson, which is, uh, and starting at the beginning, you know, Jeff Hamas was the chairman of our firm. And Jeff said, if we're going to be in New York, we need to cover large cap sponsors. And large cap sponsors tend to have dedicated debt finance partners on their deals and even dedicated capital markets groups within the sponsor that's tracking these deals in terms and the relationships with the banks. And so it was really that decision that was fateful. And also, this says a lot about Kirkland, right? Kirkland started off really the bread and butter being middle market private equity. And then what we've seen is what used to be middle market private equity has become very much large cap. These private equity sponsors have grown with the industry. And once we decided to go into New York and to seek large cap sponsor clients there, Jeff said something funny. I was talking to him about why did we ever decide to do a debt finance group? He was like, well... The the private equity sponsor would say, "Hey, send our working group list," and we'd send it over, and it would be three people. (laughs) And they would get the same list from you know the more traditional New York firms, and it was like twenty people. And that was because at Kirkland there was really a generalist approach of you do the M and A transaction, you do the equity arrangements, you do the debt on the private equity, and we learned that we had to specialize. And so Andy Kaufman hired a woman named Linda Myers, who is the godfather of our debt finance practice, really, here at Kirkland, and then Dwenda made a, a number of critical hires, including in New York, first Jason Kanner and then Jay Potashik, And so now we had a group on the ground in New York. This was 2008, 2009. so I'd already been there a couple of years, and there was other things going on. Remember, now the world's financial crisis is happening, right? And so anyone that was working at a law firm like mine was that job can be tough. Let's say, let's put it that way. But when all of your friends that are at banks and first years at law firms are getting fired and your friends at banks have been being paid in stock in these banks, all of a sudden it looked a lot better. And so I was like, how do I keep my job? And also if I'm going to keep this job, how do I become a partner here? And the lesson that I saw was, look, like, it's a new group. There's no real junior partners in it. There are no real associates in it. If I go there and I work as hard as I can, and I become excellent at this, I can become partner. And finding those opportunities at large corporate law firms, I think is critical. Right? Like You got to find some inefficiencies. You got to find the play to get ahead. And, and so that's why I did
0: that. In terms of debt finance, before about 2005, I mean, almost all of, even what the largest private equity sponsors would be of a size that today, even in inflation adjusted terms, we would probably consider middle market. So how did their debt finance evolve from where it was, say, in early 2000s, 2002, three, four? Again, when a $2 billion, $3 billion deal was a large deal for any sponsor to the kind of sophistication of debt finance we see today?
1: I think that there's been a number of critical factors. So first of all, some private equity sponsors saw the importance of having someone committed to their financing relationships really from the beginning. And like, let's be honest, those financing relationships have always been important, right? You can read Barbarians at the Gate today. They make the point that KKR paid more for RJR Nabisco because they wanted Drexel to place the debt. So that's always been a driver in investment thesis and deal certainty. A couple of private equity sponsors have had dedicated capital markets pros since the 90s. Mike Babiars at cd is considered the godfather of that strain. And then Warburg had a capital markets presence from the 90s as well. But then what I've seen is there was a ramp up when the private equity boom of the mid-2000s happened. There was all these deals going on. And they were becoming super large deals at this point. Private equity sponsors were saying, we need to have uniformity. And and also, to your point, the sponsors were getting larger in terms of people. And so a desire for uniformity across the banking relationships, tracking the terms, seeing the fees that are being paid to each of the banks became a point of emphasis in that ramp up. And so you saw a number of sponsors create a dedicated capital markets arm in the 2007, I want to say, range. And then the world financial crisis just showed the way your debt is structured and set up can be part of your investment thesis. And so you had another round of expansion around 2012, 2013. And so the clients that I work with, for example, that have established capital markets practices just in recent times are like David Leland at BC Partners, Greg Maxson at THL, and Doug Wallach at Stone Peak Partners capital, a number of recommitted and dedicated people to those lines of businesses. And so I think it's only going to grow from here. And those capital markets professionals, by the way, have now established their own sort of buy side relationships. And what you're seeing now is private equity firms are working with the traditional underwriter banks to become underwriters themselves. And so that's been the evolution. And luckily for me, that's also meant that there are capital markets professionals at private equity firms that are looking for their own lawyers.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, how has that changed the debt finance practice? Because, again, if you went back, clearly sponsors always needed to finance deals. But these were tiny institutions you might have had. at KKR, if you went back 30 years, you probably had 15 partners. And you didn't have a massive number of younger folks. Whereas now, as you're saying, you have large capital markets teams that are almost standalone. That has to affect their relationships both with banks and with their law firms.
1: Totally. So one thing that you've seen is, you know, the way that I would describe sort of a debt finance partner in a client relationship prior to this most recent expansion is if you have the deal professional, the investor, that's doing both the debt and the M&A transaction, you kind of need a steady set of hands, someone that's working in the background, that's making sure that the debt documents really address any of the deal-specific needs or the business-specific needs, and less focused on the overall market out there and saying, what is the market flexibility, which had already kind of entered the high-yield market One of the stories of recent times has been the convergence of terms from the Michael Milken high-yield market to the Jimmy Lee term loan market, and that's been driven by a uniform approach to documentation that's been driven by having capital markets professionals. But more to the point for law firms is now you need people that are client-facing, that have independent and established client relationships Because at the client, there are specific people making hiring decisions. And that is a little bit different, right? When you only have one person that's sort of managing both of those processes, they kind of rely on the M&A lawyer to bring in the right debt person. And now you see the capital markets professional have a lot more say over the advisors that they work with. And now you're seeing oftentimes there will be different law firms representing A private equity sponsor on the same transaction, someone that's doing the M and A, and someone that's doing the debt finance, and that's just a recognition that they are pretty separate work streams at this point, and with separate contacts at the individual sponsor.
0: So, Eric, in the fall, you moved from New York to Los Angeles to help grow. Kirkland's office out there. Tell us about that effort and about how your experience as a debt finance lawyer has affected how you view law firm management generally.
1: So we have historically had a pretty excellent Southern California offering. We've been out here 25 years. Historically, I would say it was litigation focused like Kirkland was, Mark Holscher was instrumental in building these offices. and I say offices in the last three or four years. We've added a second office in LA in Century City. And that was a result of Michael Warnoff, Pippa Bond, Monica Schilling coming over in their team from Proskauer. And so one of the reasons we're coming out here and why there's a growth opportunity is just, look, my clients are in New York or on the East Coast for the most part. And the expectation is that by doing their work here and finding additional resources here, that will build the offices. And then from that, you can look at it and say, it's not just a debt finance opportunity. And so what we're trying to solve for is everyone's competing for resources in New York. Everyone's looking to hire in New York. If you can find ways to service our clients, including East Coast clients, From the West Coast, that gives us an opportunity to grow here where there is more available resources and historically fewer law firms to compete with.
0: So one of the things you're talking about in terms of the evolution of the debt finance practice is the effect of technology upon it. Tell us how you've seen that play out even over the course of your career and where you see it today.
1: Well, I think my career is the archetype of the intersection of technology and the practice of law. I was the first first first-year class at Kirkland to get a BlackBerry, right? And I think that the practice of law and the business of law is at a point of huge disruption that I'm not sure is fully grasped. So if you think about it, 25 years ago, there were associates that were stuffing FedEx envelopes. There were people that were working in document services that we're doing actual red lines on typewriters. And these limitations that technology has eliminated also slowed down deal volume and velocity. If you need to redo a document every time because it's on the printer or it's on a typewriter or your FedEx doesn't get there on time, there's naturally limits on how quickly deals can get done. Or if you're waiting for your lawyer to check his pager and to call you back from the from the phone at the restaurant. And so what we've seen and I think we're at a critical juncture is technology has allowed deals to get done extremely quickly and extremely efficiently and collecting data is part of that and will be a driver of deals getting done in that way. And that is driving the need for unlimited resources effectively for law firms that are doing that type of work, because now the demands have become that much higher. If our clients are able to meet with management over Zoom or do diligence much quicker on their iPad, and now deals can get done much quicker and lawyers are always available, what's the next step? And so now law firms, I think, are at a place where They are trying to find resources, and you're seeing that in law firms exploring additional geographies that have not historically been sources of lawyers, right? You know, the last office that we opened was Salt Lake City, and that's because there are a lot of lawyers in Utah that are super competent and super qualified, and we need to think
0: outside the box. So what do you think your practice looks like in five years or 10 years in this regard? It's a good question.
1: I already use a large amount of data in terms of how I give advice and have hired people specifically to track data to give more efficient sort of responses quicker. And by that, I mean, you know, a lot of times you get asked questions, hey, what did we do on this last deal? what's the general market on this? And you have an idea in your head, but I'm constantly <laughs> double-checking that, right? Because the ideas in our head are often wrong. <laughs> and so making that quicker, being able to get to the right result quicker through the use of data in a large platform, I think is the future. And I think people are doing that. And then I think the people that are tracking these terms and are spending time that that will start to get replaced. That technology will be able to review credit agreements in a meaningful way or commitment papers or term sheets and identify the key terms and input those pretty much seamlessly. It hasn't gotten to that yet. The software is not there, but it's hard to imagine it's really going to be that much longer. And if you think that your job is partially to advise on what is the world on this term, then that's a pretty meaningful difference.
0: One of the things that's always struck me about M&A is that every public company M&A agreement is available on the SEC's website and has been since the late 90s. For- download. And yet there's a lot less standardization in those agreements than that volume of information would seem to make possible. How come we haven't seen more standardization there as compared to perhaps the average debt finance covenant or agreement?
1: I've got a couple of reasons. Now, some of them speculative, but I do think that tied to this idea that the practice of law is becoming higher velocity, higher volume, more data specific, and that what your clients care about is how does this work for others, hasn't really gotten to the M&A practice. I think that the way that that is done is a bit different, that there is much more, hey, we need to talk about sort of every issue in this agreement. And with different types of people, you know, you're talking to a general counsel of a company, they're answering to a board. So there's the response, well, this is how it is in this deal on the SEC website, I don't think is as salient as a capital markets professional at a private equity firm that's saying, this is what the market looks like, and the market is relevant to this determination here. And so I do think there's so that. Now, that being said, I do think that there's a fair amount of, hey this public company, A, is we're doing a purchase agreement with them, we should pull the publicly filed purchase agreements. So I do think there's probably more conformity than probably gets credit. Mm -hmm. On top of that is the private deals have historically been a little bit different from public deals just in terms of their structure, in terms of post-closing indemnification and things like that. And so you had more variability. Now, one of the trends that you're seeing in M&A where I think technology is going to be even more important is, look, purchase agreements are becoming more like public company agreements in a lot of ways. And part of that is driven by the growth of rep and warranty insurance. So like that diligence process that we spoke about becomes paramount because it becomes a risk assessment, a risk allocation determination, and then it's insured and it's not really surviving. So I do think data collection and these trends are going to lead to more conformity in the M and A space too. But that's just one
0: man's view on that. And then Eric, finally, what do you do when you're not practicing law or thinking about these issues?
1: Uh, not much. <laughs> I've got a couple of hobbies. I do hang with my wife, Kristen, and my Westie, Ollie. I play tennis now that I live in L. A., which is insane. In, <laughs> in the morning, in like shorts and short sleeve shirt, so. I spend most of my off time watching the Bravo channel (laughs) and the attendant television shows on it. And I want to use this opportunity to say the real housewives of Beverly Hills is the best show, maybe with succession that I've seen in the last 12 months. And that's because, so there's a very famous plaintiff's lawyer in LA, Tom Girardi, Tom Girardi, was one of the inspirations for the lawyer in Aaron Brockovich. Tom Girardi has apparently been running a Ponzi scheme, allegedly, with client funds for 20 years, including like the Lion Air crash, etc. And his wife, who is now has filed for divorce when this came out, is on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and is insane on it. And there are some people that watch this like, oh, this is entertaining Real Housewives TV. I watch it from, I cannot believe this is happening. This would be like Ruth Madoff being on a reality TV show (laughs) while Bernie Madoff is like charged with the crimes and fighting the other women about it. It's insane. And so... I should probably tell you you got slim pickings outside of work. And so
0: finally, I have to ask you, when you watch Succession, does it ring true to you? Does it seem like something that's a farce or are there pieces of it that are really recognizable to you as someone who works in the world of New York, U.S. finance?
1: Well, I'm not in that rarefied air, but I will say what I love about that show is I find myself cringing regularly from like seeing my own flaws, you know what I mean? Put to life in the various characters. And actually, one of my partners who I've mentioned during this discussion one time called me out of the blue and said, You know, you really remind me of Logan Roy. And <laughs> I have been struggling to figure out how bad of an insult that was intended as <laughs> so like every episode i'm asking my wife is logan roy terrible like am i terrible what's it? so but i mean that show is unreal i think it's amazing too
0: eric thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me. for drinks with the deal i'm david marcus